Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today Martin Kassing, CEO of Upvest. Martin, welcome to the show. Likewise. Uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time. I always like to start, Martin, by um, asking about your background and what you did before you started Upvest. I know you, you've spent some time as an entrepreneur even before starting this company. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I studied actually business and math in Germany and afterwards joined a private equity fund in Germany and the Netherlands and invested in a couple of software businesses around Europe. Um, and grew there from classical intern, analyst, to associate, at the end, investment manager and operating partner. Um, I, I left the private equity fund, uh, it was around 2014, to start my first venture, which was called Shopgo. It was a fintech company to automate payment process via a browser extension. It started in Germany, Düsseldorf. Um, I was the COO there and grew the company to around 14 people, 40 people, went to San Francisco where we also then served certain clients in the Bay Area. Uh, the company ultimately got sold to Klarna, a big payment provider here in Europe. Um, then I returned to, to Berlin, my home city, where I also grew up, uh, joined a, a company builder called Finleap as a CPO and helped a couple of businesses on regulatory side, but also fine-tuning their, their product roadmaps. But ultimately actually um, got... got um, turned into the, the blockchain space. I invest personally in the blockchain space since 2014 and always followed the, uh, the technical developments there and decided then in 2017 to, to found the company and raise the first seed funding. Um, right now we are around 22 people and uh, based in Berlin. So interesting. So you started investing in the blockchain space, you said, in 2014? Yeah. Was that just like buying Bitcoin and and? I guess in 2014 there weren't in many other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, no, it was it, it was more, uh, it was Bitcoin back in the days, and then followed by by Ethereum. Um, pretty pretty early on, though, I also participated actually in an ICO in in 2016. Um, it's called Swarm City. It was like like a peer to peer driving service uh, in Austin in in the US. Um, and it was pretty exciting back in the days because I used like this very old uh, Maitha wallet with a YouTube explanation how to buy these tokens. And back then I really had no <laughs> idea what I was buying. But, I love but, that. But, but I, was, I, was, 
But I was super excited because I always thought in the US, especially in Austin, they didn't have Uber and it was banned. And I thought, okay, in, in Berlin, it was the same situation. I thought it would, it would be pretty cool when you have a token that can be peer-to-peer -peer and you can actually drive then also in my home city in Berlin. So that's why I invested. Uh, it didn't really turn out that well, but it was a really good experience. Yeah, sounds like it. So you saw the potential in this decentralized technology very early on then. But it took you kind of three years until you decided to start a company in the space. What pushed you in that direction? Um, so, so I was always in tech and in finance. And I think those are the, the core skills you need also in the blockchain space. Because on the one hand, you have to understand how the numbers work, the regulatory side, actually also how to build products in the fintech space. On the other hand, also, you need to understand the technology behind and get excited uh, about the decentralization. And, um, I, I created the company in 2017 because um, I could see that this is now really taking off. Back then, it was mostly by, by the ICOs. But it was also a time where actually um, I was more confident about the whole decentralization of it because you could see the, the fact that ICOs actually kind of, most of them failed, doesn't mean that there was a huge demand by a lot of global investors. Um, and they would like to invest in something new or they would like to believe in something new. And that was for me like a trigger saying, okay, this is, this is a big movement that really happens, not just on a technical side, but also on the human side. Um, and that's why I started the business. And I figured out there's so many businesses out there um, that still try to scam people um, or they're not really advanced on a financial or technical side that I thought a bit more quality in this field would eventually help this market to mature further. Yeah, absolutely. I guess since you started in 2017 and you touched on it as well, were you tempted at any point to do an ICO and issue a native token or that's something you've never considered? <laughs> it's a really funny one. Um, so, of course, we thought about doing an ICO, uh, but our business is a little bit different. So we have an abstraction layer on top of different protocols to make it really easy to build uh, blockchain applications and to integrate it into classical traditional businesses. So uh, we didn't really find a use case um, to, to create an ICO because our business <laughs> does not necessarily have a, have a huge utility. Yeah, that, that's why we didn't do an ICO because we said, okay, I mean, probably could, we could have raised something, but uh, we didn't feel really comfortable around it, to be honest. Right. Makes sense. So what is Upvest? Uh, Upvest is, um, in, a, in, its, in a nutshell, an abstraction layer on top of the common blockchains. So Ethereum and the substandards, ERC20, 1400. 7 to, to 1, um, and Bitcoin to make it very simple for businesses to, to build blockchain apps. Um, and the key differentiating factor is that our solution entirely works within the, these apps, so in-app, without the end user uh, knowing that they use the blockchain in the first place. The products that we offer are non-custodial wallets, wallets that actually can also be recovered with a pretty slick um, recovery mechanism. Um, and uh, also the transaction management, the data management, and the fee management around this, so that you actually don't have to worry about the whole blockchain asset management within your app. I see. So it's basically an API solution for companies to use when they want to plug in the blockchain on the back end. Exactly. And um, there are also some other players that focus more on the, the node infrastructure. Uh, we focus more on the whole key management aspect and um, asset management uh, itself. I see. And who are the main clients? Like, is, is that geared towards financial institutions and players in the legacy financial system? Or who's kind of using your products? Yeah, that's also actually an interesting story. At the beginning, we thought that a lot of crypto companies get started with this, but we figured out that there is a much bigger need for 
uh, fintech companies that would like to tokenize certain investments that are not easily accessible for, for the masses. So one of our customers is called Exporo. It's uh, one of the largest crowdfunding platforms in Europe, and they sell real estate online. And now they actually distribute these real estate securities with a token into our wallet infrastructure. And with this, they save around 80% in banking costs because they don't need a, a banking partner in between anymore. Since we figured this out, so this magic number of saving 80% compared to banking, we see far more traditional financial companies in the investment space using our technology. And we see also more and more assets going on the blockchain. So at the beginning, it was um, mostly real estate. And now we see also debt instruments, equity. But we also have a customer called Monerium in Iceland. They really put uh, they put e-money with a license on Ethereum blockchain, make it really possible to swap um, now e-money with real, real assets uh, in a smart contract. So I would say that um, 90% of the businesses are in the financial space, but more like a dig pure digital players, so fintechs, I would say. Um, and around 10% are more traditional players that would like to digitalize their investment offering. Hmm, interesting. And why don't they need banks anymore? How do you guys help them bypass banks altogether and generate these savings in costs? Yeah, um, so there are a couple of steps. Typically, when you issue a security and file a prospectus, um, you have to uh, file an issuance. And for this issuance, it's a bank that's doing it typically. This can be replaced by a smart contract. And a smart contract is obviously cheaper than uh, paying for every issuance 25,000 euros. So typically, when you issue a security costs you 25,000 euros. A smart contract, once it's built, costs you a couple of hundred euros. And then you always have to think about where do I send um, these security tokens? And in the, in the old world, you always send it to the depository bank account. This depository bank account is regulated, it's local, and it costs around 40 to 50 euros uh, with an API integration uh, per year. Now think about uh, a minimum investment of 1,000 euro. This is already like 4% of your return just goes away to this banking partner. So, uh, what we have created is, is kind of like the same experience that you have with a bank, but with a non-custodial stack that runs within an app. So you now send the security token uh, to a wallet um, that is maintained by the user itself with the username and password and two of A on top. And this way, actually, you don't have to uh, work with the intermediary, the depository bank anymore. It has also the other big advantage that you can now distribute the real securities outside of your home country because... You, you don't need a banking partner in every country anymore. This also increases substantially the revenue potential for our customers. Interesting. How do you handle regulation? There, there are a couple of things. So there is a regulation of custody. So we actually talk with the German regulator, the BaFin, to get the approval for our non-custodial stack. So we are a pure technology provider, um, and the users pro uh, provide, uh, hold it in self-custody. Um, that basically means they have the full possession anytime and can always take away the asset, uh, which is very important. And if you distribute it across borders, um, then you have to also passport this um, when you have an investment uh, via a prospectus. But typically what happens, you have a prospectus, say, in Luxembourg or in Germany, and then you, then you rewrite it in the local language in another uh, country to also sell to this country. But the technical limitations are not there anymore because you don't have to work with a banking partner in the country. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, one of the things where... I see a lot of potential in the space, right? Are companies that are doing something along the lines of what you guys are doing, which is offer a better solution when users don't necessarily even realize that on the back end you're using blockchain technology, right? Some companies put that front and center, but actually most users, unless they're in the space like us, they don't really care. What they want is for it to be faster, cheaper, and so forth. 
Yeah, this is actually a good point uh, because Exporo did now the eighth uh, security token this week. They do around three to four security tokens of around two to five million, and all of them actually get filled. And uh, not a single of their end users knows knows that they used the blockchain in the first place. Um, so, and they have around now five thousand people that have invested in these different um, real estate investments in in Germany and and also I think now in the Netherlands. And um, it, it was pretty fascinating to see if, if they actually f- uh, feel that they use the blockchain, but they don't. It feels like a normal account account to them. Interesting. And then do you spend a lot of time with your clients educating them about the space and how to bring these real-world assets onto the blockchain? That depends. Um, so some of the customers, they have their internal uh, blockchain uh, project leaders or the CTOs get really excited about this, and then they know... The technical benefits of it. So our our job is to translate this into something that works also, let's say, on a, on a regulatory side, on a security side, and also end user experience. So we kind of like a translator, um, and we try to make our API as simple that every normal developer can actually integrate this into the uh, application without actually knowing, for instance, solidity. Um, but yes, sometimes you you have. Uh, small educational sessions and we're very happy to educate also this business because I think this is part also of our mission to to evangelize that um, a blockchain based system is better because it's open it's more transparent it's global it's cheaper um, and even though when some customers or some potential customers don't sign up with us they typically come back at a later stage when they when they feel ready so the educational part makes a lot of fun to us so sounds like you're saying there's a big potential in real estate specifically right yeah, real estate is one of the first verticals where we see the highest growth. Um, it's, a, it's a gigantic market. So it, it, there are two subsets of the market. One is uh, the pure investment in real estate. There we have customers like a BrickBlock, um, uh, Exporo, but also Blockster. They just take um, mostly uh, commercial uh, real estate, then tokenize it and make it very easy to invest into. So typically when you invest in a REIT, there's some minimum investment requirements. Um, here you can also invest up to just one euro because the cost were reduced so much that you can now invest like one euro in a, in a building in Berlin and eventually can also later uh, liquidate this better because um, you have it available 24-7 uh, and most of our platforms want to build like a marketplace around this. Um, the other field in real estate, which probably happens also in the next couple of years, is that you also have a registry on the blockchain, at least in some areas in Germany as a, as a testing, so that you have a land registry on it. And then you actually have also the, the property right with a token on the blockchain, which makes it easier to transfer certain things. So when I, for instance, have 100% in my, my house, I eventually could then also give away 25% uh, to, to my girlfriend or sell it because I want to want to refinance my house. But this probably happens in the next I don't know, three to five years. The first use case in real estate is pretty, pretty simple. You just buy a certain fraction of, of uh, an interesting property. Yeah, and why is the registry one you think a good fit for blockchain? Is that because of immutability of transactions being on chain? At the moment, in asset tokenization, you have still a, um, a skewed system. So the token that represents the ownership on the blockchain is, is just a claim, and you have to go to the issuer. In that case, the issuer that actually bought the real estate in the first place, and claim claim the ownership. But if you actually combine this token uh, with a registry that is also living on a blockchain, then it's, it's much easier also to, to sell the property or to own the property itself. It's the same um, with a car or any other asset. There's always like an offline document that is important for, for your ownership. But just imagine this offline document will be also represented on the blockchain. 
then then the magic really starts because then you can actually um, transfer the real property to someone else and you can also lend lend um, on the property itself because right now you still have, always have to go to the issue in the first place yeah makes sense so it's that advantage of basically removing the middleman and having the ability to transact freely between the two counterparties exactly yep yeah that's that's definitely an exciting use case so you know there's been a lot of talk i guess over the past couple of years about security tokens and asset tokenization in general many people thinking that blockchain presents this big opportunity to tokenize real world assets but i think the general perception is so far that it hasn't really taken off yet and i know you have a slightly different view of that would love to get your take on it yeah so so there are a couple of things that are important for me to mention so first of all um I think we could show that there are massive benefits uh, of using the blockchain in the first place and also uh, our solution combined um, by reducing the banking costs. So some of our customers literally save 80% to the previous banking solution that they had in place, like Exporo, for instance. And Exporo is also growing pretty rapidly. So they do like the eighth um, security token. Um, so they have issued around, um, I would say, 30 to 40 million. They want to do 300 million this year on the blockchain. Um, it's a pretty sizable company. So um, it's, a, it's a good indicator that something is happening there. And we get actually approached by a lot of companies, also professional companies that have really good assets and also have an investor base that say, okay, we would like to build it on the on the blockchain rails because for us it's, it's more international, it's cheaper, and it's open. So um, I think it took just a little bit more time because it's so much more complicated to get started. Yeah. So why hasn't it happened so far? I mean, there's been a lot of investments in the space. There's been a lot of talk about it, but it hasn't really materialized yet. What's holding it back? Um, I think one of the big um, changes that happened last year um, were the regulatory approvals in Europe. So we had the first regulatory approval in, in Germany to distribute now real securities on a blockchain to retail customers. And we also got the uh, approval in, in Luxembourg, um, which is a hub for a lot of asset managers to distribute uh, across Europe. So this didn't happen in the US yet. And this opened a new uh, market and new possibilities for a lot of these diff different players. I think a second factor, it's always when you have these new technologies, it takes a little bit more time because compared to an ICO, you have to file a prospectus in, in the um, securitization business or asset tokenization business. And this typically takes three to six months until this whole whole thing starts. So when you just consider uh, the fact that um, last year in March and April there was the regulatory approval, it still took many players three to six months to get the regulatory approval in the first place. We are actually uh, seeing quite some progress. So some of our customers are really growing um, well. Um, not, of course, like back in the ICO days where you could really close everything like in 30 seconds, but they're continuously issuing... Um, interesting investments and sell these investments. And um, I think it was also not pretty clear back in the days um, what the real world benefits are. And I think now it's pretty clear that you can cut out certain middlemen and save compared to classical banking banking rails. Yeah. And you think, is it clearer now when you talk to clients, do they get it or do you still have to spend a lot of time educating them about it? You still have to educate them, to be honest. <laughs> um, so <laughs> That's what I thought. We also probably write more educational material about this and, and talk more on stage about this. Um, 
there, there is not a lot of um, you know, a lot of fact thinking in, in the blockchain space in general. So there's always like the the vague idea that you can do something and it eventually works. And that if it doesn't work, you always say, "Well, it is like the internet in the '90s, and it will get better over time." But I think in in, in the blockchain space, you see already in the, for the asset tokenization really substantial real-world benefits. Um, and we could could see them with a couple of our clients where you can really reduce um, the costs as set up to 80%. And yeah, we have to evangelize more um, the fact and also, but we still have to educate many customers. Right. And what about one pushback that I hear a lot about and I see that pretty much on a daily basis is just about the perception of crypto. And some companies just don't want to deal with crypto. They think it's used for illegal activity. They think about the scams that occurred with the ICO mania that happened uh, end of 2017, early 2018. Is that something that you hear a lot about? Um, depends. Uh, there are a couple of uh, companies that really don't want to touch crypto. So most of our clients, they accept fiat money for the security tokens. Um, because they don't want to touch crypto, we also see see it with a couple of banking um, clients that they actually um, don't want to touch crypto, but would like to go into the asset tokenization space. Um, you're probably right. I think the bigger the companies uh, get, the more um, yeah reluctant they are to to open up for crypto. That might change in the next couple of years, but in the asset tokenization space, they I have to say they're pr- pretty open. Yeah, that's the educational component of it, right? Where you come in and you explain to them about the benefits and why they should give it a go. Yeah, it's for them easier to understand. Uh, most, most people still think in, in real-world assets and in, in the cryptocurrency space, it's very hard to really touch the asset itself because it's it's part of the, the protocol itself. So I have the feeling that a lot of these, these traditional companies, they would rather have something that they really... Uh, can can touch and feel, <laughs> uh, which they sometimes can't, can't with Bitcoin or Ethereum. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And then when you talk about now having more regulatory clarity, that's in Germany. Does that also impact your ability to passport across Europe? Yeah, so you can passport it across Europe. You also have the regulatory approval in Luxembourg. Most of asset managers actually issue a securities and prospectuses in, in Luxembourg. And then you also have the possibility to passport this across Europe. Right. What about the US? It's not really possible there just yet, right? No, um, it's possible that you passively take some investments from the US, but you cannot actively approach uh, the US market right now. Um, so so there needs to be still some legislation in the US that there it's also possible to sell to re- um, retail customers. Right. Makes sense. And when you talk about, Martin, the, the 80% savings in costs and the ability to remove middlemen and not necessarily have a clearinghouse in place anymore, a centralized clearinghouse, just curious about your view on where this is headed. Do you think in the future we're going to see these sort of transactions occur with no banks involved? Yeah, um, I think this will happen in the future. And we see it already happen with, uh, happening with some of our clients um, that we could replace already a bank entirely. Um, and when you think about the, the full stack, then you, you have, let's say, a smart contract that issues a certain uh, investment. 
you don't need an issuance agent anymore, then you actually distribute it to, let's say, non-custodial wallets, and you don't need a custodian anymore for this. And later when you trade it or when you distribute also dividends around this, you can also do this uh, with smart contracts, especially when you when you have stable coins or real e-money on the blockchain. So the, the core business uh, of a bank is being an intermediary, a trusted intermediary. And in, in many cases in the future, you you don't need this anymore. A good example is the classical function of having an escrow. So bank is just holding the funds until two parties agree or both parties actually funded a certain deal right. and swap it. This is something that you don't really need in the future anymore with smart contracts. And it's still a big function. Um, I think you can automate a lot of different processes in a bank with the smart contracts, uh, which eventually will reduce also the potential margin banks, banks can ask for. Right. What about the risk of vulnerability that is in the smart contracts themselves? Is that something that you need to address? Do clients ask about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the good thing is that you, you have a lot of agencies that can audit the, the, the smart contracts, a lot of security firms around this. Um, I think there is there is always a risk. So our customers ask us for um, yeah, a security review of most of our tech. Um, I think this this will probably not change. The good thing is, though, that these smart contracts are open source. And if something happens, someone else can learn from it, which has a pretty good network effect in, in learning what, what works and what doesn't, which you typically don't have when you work with, let's say, centralized systems. When something fucks up, let's say, in a centralized database, there's no sharing of uh, this problem to, to the outside world. That's why I think also working with a blockchain is so powerful because everything that doesn't work and there are still a lot of things that sometimes don't work uh, gets published to the whole world to, to make it better. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's one of the things I keep talking about, right? Like the composability of blockchain and the ability to link different elements of it or different dApps is just so powerful, right? I think in the legacy financial system were used for the systems to directly compete with each other while in the blockchain world oftentimes you can just build on top of existing infrastructure so for instance like you know layer two solutions can just build on top of layer one right whether it's ethereum or bitcoin and so forth and one can take from the other and just improve on it rather than start from scratch yeah 100 percently. so we get really excited about the openness of this market per se. So there is the openness for developers to contribute, but there's also the uh, openness once you're connected, let's say, to a public network like Ethereum to to, to connect to other participants in, in a trustless manner with smart contracts and so on. And I, I cannot imagine like in 10, 15 years that this will not prevail because it's, it's, a, it's a better system. Open systems always win compared to closed systems in my point of view. It probably takes a little bit longer this time because a lot of money is involved. Um, a lot of different le- legislations, but I th- I'm pretty confident that we will see in 2030 and probably thereafter even even more um, a lot of the, f- the assets in the world on the blockchain, um, of course, including Bitcoin and Ethereum, but I, I think we'll also see traditional assets on it because it, it's just far, far superior compared to a closed siloed system. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm a, a potential client and I want to use AppVest to tokenize my real-world assets, can you describe how the process works? Yeah, so, so it depends if you're a developer or if you're more from a business side. If you're a developer, you can just go on our website, um, um, immediately use our API in, in a, a test environment and play around with this and integrate into your app. 
Um, if you want to go live, then typically we connect our Slack channels or we have a, a phone call to, to help you out. And then you get, get, can get going. If you're more on the, let's say, business side and you would like to get more information about the terms, uh, the security, we typically have an educational session. It's like one or two hours uh, with, with, with our clients to educate them what they can do with our technology and um, uh, what, what the terms are. And yeah, then we connect the Slack channels thereafter for the, for the engineers. So we always try to educate as much as possible early on and then thereafter to connect our engineers directly on Slack We've seen this is the the most successful way of get, getting started, um, as as you can immediately start writing code. Then, yeah, absolutely. And can you share some metrics? Like, just curious, how many clients you have, or what's the size of the operation you're running so far? Yeah. So last year we have around uh, 50 million in, in tokenized assets. So this year we plan to have a 500 million to 1 billion based on our current customers and the growth. Wow, that's a big jump. Yeah, it's a big jump. It, it's dependent on a couple of bigger clients. Uh, so for instance, just Exporo, they want to do 300 million this year already. And they have done last year in the traditional rails around 350 million. So it seems also realistic. Um, but there are also other bigger clients that actually go into the space. Um, we have around, uh, I think, 100 businesses using our solution. Um, of those are also very small startups, to be honest. Uh, they come. What gets us exciting that they come from all over the world. So we have over 80 countries that have signed for our API. Some are just playing around. Some are just um, building a proof of concept. Some of them actually really put like our infrastructure into the back of their uh, entire apps. So it really, really it depends. So we, I would say of the larger customers, we have around uh, 20 um, that are also paying. Got it. What I really like about it is crypto critics or blockchain critics oftentimes point out that there's no real you know, real world use case for it yet. And there's no adoption. But actually, for those of us in the industry, companies such as yourselves, like you actually see real adoption. And you see that going quite rapidly. Clients realize the advantages that you're offering through this open source blockchain technology. It's really exciting to see. It's the exciting part. And it gets also us excited here at the, at the company. Um, yet to really change change the financial world and probably also other other industries thereafter um yeah it, it was super hard to be honest to get to this use case and to really understand what, what is a real world benefit uh, but now actually it's pretty clear to us and we also evangelize it the next couple of years that's why we also raised our current series a to get more funding and to, to really get the word out and to actually empower more and more companies to use the blockchain in the first place i actually think i couldn't even imagine 10 years it's a little bit Com comparing um, cloud services with on-premise services, like 10, <laughs> 15 years I like ago, that analogy. 10, 15 years ago, it was like also, I don't know, very siloed, uh, very buggy um, on-prem services. And then there, there was a kind of uh, Salesforce with their cloud services and a lot of other companies coming around. And it has been proven to be superior for, for many reasons. It's more scalable. Um, you can, you load, can load balance things much better um, and so on. And I have the feeling... In 10 years, it will be the same thing in, in many industries and saying, hey, you're really using like centralized databases. Why don't you use the blockchain? Um, at least this is something we fight for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just so many advantages to doing that. And uh, just another more technical question. Are you guys, you mentioned earlier ELC20 and so forth. Are you guys focused mostly on Ethereum? Uh, we are an abstraction layer on top of protocols. So we have built our API that we can integrate with different 
protocols. At the moment, we support Ethereum, ERC20, 1400, 7 to 1, and Bitcoin. Um, we're thinking about also integrating a Polkadot um, this year, um, just as we, we think there's a lot of interesting innovation happening. And of course, we upgrade to Ethereum 2.0 once this then uh, really happens. But the whole idea is that our companies don't have to worry that one of these public networks eventually goes down or it stops stops um, being the, the default, that they can always switch. This is very important for, let's say, traditional companies that they say, okay, you start now with ERC-20, but if in any case, like another protocol uh, will be superior, you can still switch later via a simple API call. Got it. How do you use Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is just uh, for some of our crypto um companies so for instance uh, we have wimba it's a company in new zealand or bitwala it's a company in in berlin um they they like to have non-custodial wallets for cryptocurrencies but also for the data management and the fee management so there we have also um tooling built and are you working closely with developers that are building these layer one protocols so for instance are you are you in touch with the ethereum foundation and some of the core ethereum developers uh partly uh, not as much as you would like to to be honest um so it was super hard last year just to get the product up and running to get the um, the the metrics to to get the fundraising as you know fundraising is super difficult so it took a lot of <laughs> a lot of complexity from from, uh, from my side and from the co-founder side um and it took a lot of effort from our engineering team to really get this product out and we have really real-world um, metrics that we can use for other customers. So we would like to connect far more, actually, um, uh, with, the, with the developer community. And um, we also hired a lot of people right now to get more involved because I think we have a lot of feedback to give. They have probably also a lot of cool features that we can also use. And uh, the good thing is, though, that actually you don't have to be necessarily connected directly to the Ethereum Foundation. Most of the stuff is public. You can go on GitHub. You can actually... Uh, check out the repositories and you get a good feeling uh, what's up and running. I mean, this is the beauty of the blockchain in the first place, uh, that most of the information is public. Sometimes it just takes a little bit longer to find it. That's why meetups and um, hackathons are super helpful because some people can pinpoint you to really cool new things. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the magic. Do users need to actually use private keys and, you know, browser extensions? Because I know your core offering basically involves a username and a password, right? Uh, yeah. The funny thing is that actually we encrypt um, the, the private key uh, with something and then with the password or the passphrase, then we actually store it as an HSM. And with every transaction, pretty much, um, you actually sign in the transaction through our HSM. So this gives, uh, the, gives a secure environment. If the user, for instance, uh, forgets the password, there's a recovery mechanism. We call it um, a recovery kit. So they upload something like you also maybe uh, know one password or last last pass that you actually can just upload like a QR code. This QR code embeds some meta information. For instance, like your KYC data, when, once you have signed up, transaction history, and so on. And then um, the, the app itself can, can um, regenerate uh, access to the wallet thereafter once they have to receive the recovery kit. So it's a... The recovery kit gives you always the possibility to always get, get access to your um, to your wallet, but it has the beauty that you don't have a, a let's say, blank uh, private key. So you give, can give away the recovery kit to your wife, to your friends. You can even publish it on LinkedIn because uh, no one can really use use anything out of this without a decryption key, which is actually at the, on the premise of, of the app itself. Interesting. I feel like in the crypto space, there's 
this notion that usernames and passwords are something that you know should pass from the world right that is something that is pretty old school but sounds like you're saying like this approach yes using maybe password managers actually makes a lot of sense yeah i mean it depends who you want like to approach um so if you if you want to go to the the broader masses they are used to username and password and a 2FA on top. And this 2FA, I think in the future, will be probably much like a biometric scan. Um, you have already an Apple, or it can be also like, like a service like Twilio that you actually get an SMS and you, you verify on top of this. Um, this is this is much easier for people to use. And as, as said, most of the end users that actually um, use, use um, our app customers, they don't even know that they use the blockchain in the first place. So uh, this is a huge beauty because just imagine you have to educate all of your users to to manage their private keys for every transaction they do. Um, this will get far too cumbersome for, for the border mess to use it in the first place. And then most of these apps eventually can fail. I think I have just recently read like a statistic that around 99% of the MetaMask users, they, they break up. The first signups, they break up because it's so complicated. Plus it's a browser extension, which is very hard to use on your mobile phone. Uh, and so on and so forth. So I think we believe, especially in asset tokenization, in crypto, you can actually argue that there should be other solutions. Um, but in asset tokenization, I think a username and password is is certainly uh, dominant compared to, let's say, a MetaMask. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, I feel like the misconceptions in the space. I think in order to drive real adoption and see growth, you have to build a bridge between what people are used to and familiar with to this new world of decentralization and blockchain technology. And downloading MetaMask, for instance, is such a pain for someone who's not really deep into crypto that sometimes you don't have to invent the wheel in everything that you do, right? Sometimes it just it's easier to build that bridge and help people use this new technology using some of the best practices that they're used to from the legacy financial world. Yeah, I mean, when you really think in terms of conversion rates and numbers, so every different step that you have in between to do something online um, reduces your conversion rate. And if if there's even risk involved, then a lot of people just don't get even started because they don't want to touch it. And when you have to educate your users to do all the different steps in between and then also have like a very siloed experience just in your browser, um, many people just stop. So you can compare this a little bit with the payment industry. So my previous company, Shopco, was actually in the payment industry. And um, there we always looked at every uh, merchant. How can we improve the conversion rate of someone using our browser extension to to buy buy a product instantly? And um, just just like a small improvement of let's say zero point one percent or zero point two percent, were incredibly important for the big merchant. That's huge, right? Yeah, and think about how it is in the crypto space. You have literally when you want to use like a cool service or want to buy like a cool asset, uh, what kind of pain you have to go through if you use like a, a service that's much easier to use, like a really simple solution that people are used to. You could boost the conversion rate probably like five to ten times, and this has a massive, massive impact. So that's why I think if you really take it serious with bringing it to the broader masses and to to use the blockchain also for a lot of assets, not just not just Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think you also have to to take care of the user experience um, and make it very simple and also secure at the same time. I completely agree. 
From a go-to-market perspective, Martin, how did you get to that impressive number of 100 customers? Can you talk a bit more about how did you get the word out and start seeing some adoption? Yeah, absolutely. So what worked pretty well at the beginning of, of last year, surprisingly, was Google AdWords. So we, we really just uh, used Google to, uh, with Ethereum and Bitcoin to, to get some inbound request. Uh, it was pretty remarkable at the beginning. The quality of the leads was not so good because, um, yeah, we got just sometimes people that want, wanted to play around with this, but we had to spend too much money. But over time, it got better and better. What worked very much from our side um, it was actually closing the bigger bigger clients like Exporo, uh, but also Bitwala, um, the Blockster, uh, the Brick Blocks uh, here, here in Germany, especially also in Berlin, which helps a lot. Um, to to close other clients, so I think it was important to close some really good clients, and then to to um, to spread the word to to clients that were maybe not as innovative and just wanted to follow. And we still still our acquisition is pretty much built on having uh, educating a lot of people in the market, personally, but also going to events, um, being very factual, um, yeah, but being being also very personal. So we figured out it's 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 still pretty cr- critical that our customers see us see our team see how we operate how we how we do security here how we do compliance here how we do uh, tech here to to close a customer so we've we have a pretty traditional sales approach uh, which turned out to be very important for our market because if someone actually outsources such critical component to a startup like us they want to make sure that these guys don't fuck it up <laughs> so this this was important yeah makes sense and do you find that these clients need to be familiar with crypto to a certain degree before you reach out to them? Or do some of these clients really never engage with crypto assets or blockchain technology before? So most of the clients that we closed, they had some touch points or they had someone within the organization that understood crypto or blockchain in the first place, which made it much easier to also convince them and to get them start, get started. Now our big mission is also to go to classical traditional companies that are not so aware of this technology and its benefits. And our pitch is really different than, than the pitch that we had like 12 months ago. 12 months ago, it was really like, hey, you want to build something really easily on the blockchain? Use our API. Um, it's reliable. It's, it's, it's secure. Um, and it's compliant. Now our pitch actually does not even mention the blockchain so much. It's pretty much saying, hey, we have an alternative system, which is much cheaper than the status quo. Um, do you want to get started? And um, you talk really at the end about the blockchain, and how it gets integrated at the beginning, it's really just all about the benefits and how you, how you can use it in the real world. What are your costs and how you get, get started? Yeah, absolutely. I think that goes back to what we talked earlier about, right? People are looking for the benefits. Tell me it's cheaper. Tell me it's faster. How exactly do you do that on the back end? I don't know how much they care, right? It's like you're, you, know, you're, you press a button and you get an Uber in a few minutes time. How does that work? Do I really care? As a user, I feel like that's really the right approach. I think it's an important approach to to get them um, across the line. At the end of the day, they still check our check our code. I want to see like the regulatory approval. They see also our documentation. The engineers completely public on our website, so that gives 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 some trust as well. Um, and yeah, but you're right. At the beginning, it's more important. Do I want to involve time in using the blockchain in the first place? And once you could convince them, hey, I would like to uh, invest time in this and I would like to try it out, then it goes a little bit into the details. Um, but I think the first step is really to to convince them on, on the benefit side. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, my point is more from a marketing perspective, right? Once you go into the due diligence and engineers get involved, of course, you put the blockchain there and you let them explore that. But I think from a marketing perspective, when you talk to the C-suite, oftentimes they're looking more for the features or the benefits that you offer as opposed to what they're doing right now, rather than deep dive into the nitty gritty of the details. One other thing I wanted, I was curious about was how much, if at all, is the interest in your services impacted by the Bitcoin and the crypto market overall price going up and down? Uh, no, there is no correlation, to be honest. So for the, for, for the asset tokenization, there is no correlation between um, uh, Bitcoin price or Ethereum prices because they, they really use Ethereum or other protocols just to store a real world asset on it so it's not dependent on the on the price itself the only thing where we see a slight impact is on the transaction costs um and and the fees but the fees on ethereum are so so minor uh, compared to the value of transactions that you can actually uh, ignore that as well yeah do you follow closely the ethereum 2.0 discussion and kind of how that's progressing because obviously some people are worried about the network's bandwidth as it stands right now. Yeah, we follow this. Um, and it, it's interesting to see. I think in 2020, we see um, a lot of shifts in, in that regard. So we had just today discussion, hey, shall we proceed with Polkadot um, as a next protocol or shall we actually proceed with Ethereum 2.0? Um, there is a certain Ethereum client that we use that is actually provided by Parity and um, will be now maintained by a, by a DAO structure. So we have to see if you can use this Ethereum client or if we, you use like another Ethereum client or if you sh shift entirely to the Polkadot. So so I'm really curious what will happen uh, this year. Um, but uh, yeah, it's exciting to see what, what, what kind of protocols will prevail this year. So I think the biggest competition I see this year is between Polkadot and uh, Ethereum 2.0. Interesting. Have you looked at other smart contract platforms potentially as I'm thinking like EOS, Stellar and so forth? There was a time that we looked at Stellar. Um, so there were a couple of customers that actually wanted to use Stellar given their pretty good um, KYC functionality embedded in the protocol. Um, but actually Ethereum um, is far, far more dom dominant with our clients. And also when you think about it, you want to create like an open ecosystem, open uh, financial ecosystem. So at a certain point of time, you have to connect the different bits, bits and pieces. Let's say you do the primary issuance of an asset. At a certain point of time, you want to have a secondary market and maybe you want to connect smart contracts to this. Maybe you want to put like a lending on top of the, of, of the assets itself. And most of the stuff that we see is still happening in Ethereum. So um, I think it's fair to assume that it, it will be a very dominant infrastructure in the future, just to give in fact that for most developers, it's easier to connect their there are apps that are already built on Ethereum to, to other apps. Yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears just a bit, in case to get your take also on the market uh, more broadly, you mentioned earlier that you just closed your Series A. Here is what, like 7.8 million US dollars. How did you find the European ecosystem in terms for, for blockchain companies in terms of fundraising? Curious if you can compare that maybe to what you see overseas in the US. It was not easy, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it never is. Yeah, so I mean, we talked also to a couple of US investors on the East and West Coast, and they have a slightly different approach. But if you're a company from Berlin, it's not so easy to convince the US investors. It, it, it was for us tough because 
we use actually the blockchain technology for, I would say, a real asset use case, which is pretty new. It has quite some good numbers and we have a good growth, but it's not like exponential growth, right? And so on, in, the, in the crypto space, we were a little bit perceived as so nobody really believed that security tokens really take off, given the fact that we had already some clients, but it, it took us literally until um, June, July, and we really could see, okay, this is really now growing and it's repetitively growing. Um, but a lot of these, let's say, crypto investors actually have already declined on us because they, they didn't believe in the security token space. And once they decline on you, then actually you cannot go back. So we were then mm-hmm. talking to traditional investors, classical investors, um, really big venture capital funds like uh, Notion Capital in the UK, Partech from France, and Holspring Ventures from Germany. And they would, got really excited about our stuff, like really, really excited because they have looked over, at over 100 businesses before in the blockchain space and they never really understood um, uh, what the benefit of the blockchain in the first place is. So, so they were then super excited and also, also uh, in, at the end of the day, invested in us. But it was, I, I can tell you, it was a really rocky road. <laughs> it went, went up, and up and down all the time. And only when we got like the real numbers and the real facts behind us and the growth of our customers, only then it was actually easy to, to convince the investors. Yeah, what I find really interesting about that is you ended up getting investments from VCs who are not necessarily focused just on the blockchain space, right? So you didn't get investments from the crypto funds, but rather from European VCs who just look across various verticals and could see the potential in what you're doing. Curious, why do you think that is? Um, you know, I, I think... Um, people got a little bit tired also in the traditional investment space of, of crypto talks sometimes because it, the, the, the benefits are always postponed to the future. So that will happen in the future, things will happen in the future and these kind of things. And it's also very technical, very complicated, I would say. I would, I would say that it's not always easy to follow everything. And for us, for us, it was super important because the check is also much bigger. When you look at the European uh, investment base uh, of the crypto investors they typically write a check of let's say half a million maybe one million but this is really small and we wanted to raise a little bit more money so that's why we also kind of naturally had to go to to more traditional vcs to get get more funding in, the, in that space because when, when you want to raise let's say a series a series b there are not a lot of i don't even know any any vc in europe any crypto vc that actually can write a check of five to ten million yeah, makes sense. So that forced you to focus more on the traditional or more generalist VCs to begin with. That forced us to 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 work with them. Um, yeah, indeed. And for us, it was important also to diversify this a little bit. So we, uh, Holzbring Ventures is is the, I think the biggest VC in Germany. Partik is the biggest VC in France. And Notion is one of the biggest uh, software uh, investors in, in Europe and in the UK. So this way we have a really good set um, in the different market verticals. So when we want to do something in the UK, uh, Notion makes introductions. In France, Partech makes introductions. In Germany, Holzbring makes pretty good introductions. And how do you find the European, I guess, ecosystem more in general? Is it easy to attract talent? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm super excited about the European ecosystem, especially in Berlin. I mean, I grew up in Berlin, so it's super exciting to see for me. <laughs> You're a bit biased. <laughs> I'm a bit biased. Um, I think we have have amazing talent, um, and I think we have also the right mindset, a certain open-mindedness to to op- uh, to build open systems in in uh, Ger- Germany and specifically also in Berlin. And more and more talent comes comes to these hotspots. If it's if it's London or if it's 
Paris, or if it's Berlin. Um, and I think this time we can really be competitive also compared to the US. And you see, you see more and more also investments from traditional VC funds in the US, like for instance, Andresen. They did two investments in Berlin in the crypto space. One is Arweave, the other one is Silo. Um, this, this hasn't really happened in other industries that quickly. So and that is for me kind of a proof that something is really cooking here uh, in Germany, Berlin, and um, an ecosystem is evolving that's really strong. Yeah, I think a lot of people recognize that Berlin is an important innovation hub for sure. So just a couple of last questions, Martin. Beyond AppVest, what are you most excited about in the blockchain space? Is there any specific development that you're following closely? Uh, yeah, I follow the DeFi trend for me because I have a financial background. It's interesting to see what happens there. I think it's it's still early days um, and many things are not as efficient as they could be. But I think over time, we will see there really, really cool tools evolving from this. So I think the most innovative space in, in crypto is certainly in DeFi. And you see amazing things happening. Also, for instance, um, in a zero knowledge uh, proof space, we see a lot of things happening this year that we can eventually really use. So this is exciting to see. Um, I, I, I get excited, obviously, uh, about real-world applications, uh, given that, that we really, really focus on this um, as Upvest. Um, I personally also, I, I'm not just only interested in, in, in blockchain, to be honest. I also like the whole trend in fintech in general. So I, I think there is a massive shift um, in, in, uh, in finance happening, um, that you have all of these challenger banks um, taking away most customers from traditional banks, which I personally think is super exciting to see. So I have a couple of those like Rebel Neverroot and Number 26 and really excited what kind of services, services they will integrate there. That gets me, gets me also very excited next to the blockchain space. Yeah. And do you think like they were talking about DeFi specifically, how much do you think we are going to see more and more consumer adoption of crypto assets and blockchain technology in general? Because a lot of what we talked about, obviously, is geared more towards institutions and, and companies, the enterprise space. Do you think we're close to a point where we're going to see more adoption also on the consumer side of things? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think a lot of people at the end of the day, when you break it down, what do they want? They can, for instance, well, in certain DeFi uh, products and get like a pretty good interest for, for staking, for instance, or for lending. Um, it's super risky. To be honest, um, but it gives like a good good return. Um, so I think there will be there will be more and more platforms, probably even like a, a Coinbase. I know Bitwala is working on this that you you can actually lend on top of um, um, cryptocurrencies and get a pretty pretty good return. So that you're completely independent uh, from banks, which is which is exciting to see. Um, so I think there will a lot of stuff will happen. So you will probably build like another layer on top of crypto. Uh, the whole DeFi layer um, for for many things you can do. So, for instance, staking, but also for uh, lending um, uh, and so on and so forth. I think last year it has grown already pretty rapidly, um, and this year it will take off more and more. So, yeah, I think it will happen. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. I'd actually argue that DeFi's growth is the most important development in the crypto space in 2019. It's going to be fascinating, I think, to see how that plays out moving forward. Yeah, and the cool thing about DeFi, they built really, really incredible tools to cut out the middleman. Amazing tools that actually are built by the community. And um, as these tools are mostly also open source, we can also use them, uh, most of these tools also for the real world, um, which, which is super exciting as well. 
Yeah, guess what? Suddenly you can earn some real interest on your savings and so forth, right? Pretty much like zero interest uh, using fiat with traditional banks. You see loans being being issued pretty instantly. And I, and I feel like we've only just started to scratch the surface there. Yeah, we have an interesting um, test case with Acropolis in, in the UK that we actually lend on top of our real estate security tokens. So just imagine you have invested in a, in a real estate object and now you can actually put like an instant loan on top of this, which is also pretty cool. So I, I think that we also can combine the two forces. So having the DeFi and then um, putting the DeFi on top of our rails uh, for, for the real world assets. And then it becomes really, really powerful as well. Yeah, absolutely. So last question, Martin. Last but not least, I guess, and the most important one probably of this interview, how come you're not on Twitter? <laughs> I have a certain philosophy about certain things. So I try to reduce the noise, the noise as much as possible. Um, and for me, Twitter is too much noise. Uh, and I don't really know who is the other party that actually uh, replies and what they're doing. So I prefer, maybe I'm old-fashioned, I really prefer LinkedIn. Because on LinkedIn, actually, I, I know what they're doing. Um, it's, it's kind of more restricted. And it, it's a little bit more... Or less less noisy. Uh, I, I know I should probably be on Twitter, uh, but I, you know I always get too much too distracted. I, and then when I'm on Twitter, I'm there like the whole day, and then I'm not productive anymore. So I have to protect myself from it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, crypto Twitter tends to be quite noisy for sure. <laughs> Martin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed the discussion and appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.